The scripture reading is found in Mark chapter 12. We're still in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12. And it's a story, a brief story, and then also quotation from the Word of God. So here now, our text. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we're in that period of time where Jesus is approaching his arrest and trial and crucifixion and all of that, and he has been embroiled in one conversation, controversy after another. <clears throat> We've seen several of them. He was uh, concerned with uh, teaching that they understood his authority and they challenged him. The people challenging him, we'll mention again, were the chief priest. These were the people that ran the sacrificial system, the temple, and the uh, overall uh, life of Israel proceeded from them. They were scribes as well in the group. These were the Bible scholars. They were uh, of both sects, but especially of the sect of the Pharisees. And then there were the elders. The elders were the members, uh, or at least close associates, to the Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy that ran uh, all of Israel's political life. Uh, they were the establishment, and they lived in downtown Jerusalem. They all dwell not too far from the city of David. They all, most of them, were very, very wealthy, very powerful, and very pious. And Jesus was an intrusion, in many ways, upon their territory. Because here he was in the temple, teaching and preaching and <clears throat> meeting with people and doing these sorts of things, and he was a challenge. And so they had questioned his authority. He had disputed with them uh, on the notion of divorce. They brought a really silly, tricky question to him at one time, and he dealt with that. They had also uh, been talking with him about uh, the um, uh, cleansing of the temple. What was uh, his uh, uh, idea in doing that? And that became quite confrontational. Uh, there was a discussion that Jesus initiated as to who was David's son. So there was a good, pretty good argument and a pretty good controversy on understanding the person of the son of David. And as we saw last week, Jesus had told this very uh, striking parable 
of the vineyard or the wicked tenants and had preached to them the judgment that was going to come to them. And of course, there were others as well. Uh, So in this particular moment, Jesus had been confronting and being confronted by this religious establishment. There was apparently one scribe who had been a participant perhaps, but at least a real close observer to what he had been seeing in these conversations. It says that he came up after hearing them uh, disputing with one another, and he had seen that Jesus had given extremely thoughtful, deep answers, and that Jesus was really, in most of his responses in the part of Jesus in the discussion, he was on bedrock as far as Old Testament doctrine and truth was concerned, not only about his person, but about other uh, things as well. And this particular scribe was observant enough to notice that Jesus was doing very well in these conversations from a biblical perspective. And so it moved him to move forward and ask the Lord a question. And what he's asking is that question that often comes up in any discussion. What is the essence of it? What's the bare minimum? What's the bedrock? What's the foundation stone? What is the real uh, irreducible minimum? And that's what he's speaking about here in terms of the law of God. This man was a scribe. He was a scholar of the law. If he was a Sadducee, he had really a scholar of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, because that's what he considered to be the divinely inspired word of God. If he was a Pharisee, he accepted not only Moses, but also David, that is the Psalms and the writings, and he also accepted the authenticity and the inspiration and the authority of the writing prophets, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the rest. So that was uh, his basis. Uh, He knew the law. And so he asked Jesus a fundamental question. And he asked Jesus, uh, which commandment is, and our text says, the most important of all? And that phrase, most important of all, translates two little Greek words. Prote pantone. First of all. First of everything. What's the premier commandment? Now, he had an answer in mind. Because you see, this scribe, this scholar of the law, had studied it for himself. And he'd worked on it. He'd studied under the rabbis and knew the traditions. And he had already come to his conclusion. He already felt that he understood what the first commandment and the most important commandment was. Had a pretty good idea before he asked Christ what answer he was looking for. And there are about 600 plus definite commandments in the Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus' chances of getting it right, <laughs> maybe about one in 600, maybe about one in 100, maybe about one in, who knows? But he had, a, he had the question. And so Jesus answers. Jesus answered there in verse 29. The most important is, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 6. And it's the Shema, the hero Israel. It is 
well-known, foundational, taught in every home, taught in every synagogue, taught in every, every school of the uh, Old Testament that existed in that day. And it's the uh, statement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all. It's the word whole. W-H-O-L-E, like whole foods. It's the whole self is what is in view. The whole soul, the whole nephesh, the whole lev, the whole heart, the whole being, the whole strength. In other words, there's not to be any reservations in your dedication and your love for the Lord. This is the foundational, most important, principal commandment. And the Lord says so. Then the Lord answers the question expansively beyond what the young man asked. He didn't say, and what is the second? But Jesus told him. The deutero, the second commandment, is the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus reinforces it. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then these next couple of verses describe something that's, I think, very, very wholesome and very relieving. Jesus has been in confrontation with these extremely powerful people. And now he's dealing with a single scribe. And there is a mutual respect. Jesus now has someone who is, has lowered the key. Has lowered the, the, the pitch, the fever. This scribe is not seeking to kill Jesus. Or seeking to entrap him. Or seeking to embarrass him or discredit him. As all the others seem to be. This particular scribe was inquiring and he was wanting to know just how well informed and thought through is Jesus' doctrine. And so when he asked this question, he responds when he hears Jesus' response. He said, you are right, teacher. You have truly said. Those are, those are sweet words. I mean, when you teach and teach and teach, and finally somebody comes up to you and says, you're right. <laughs> It'll just make your day. Because most of the time, people coming up will talk about just how you missed it all together, or how you don't have the shade or the nuance, or the one I like best when I get criticized, which is frequent, you didn't say this. Yeah, but I said, I did say this. <laughs> and I said it at length. <laughs> and I said it vociferously and repeatedly. And I pounded the pulpit most of the time. But you didn't say this. You've answered truly. You've answered right. This, there's, I can see there's become a, a tenderness. This is kind of like what happened a short time previously when Jesus had dealt with the rich young man, remember? And they had discussed things about inheriting eternal life. And Jesus had finally said to him, you know, you only lack one thing. Sell all you have and come follow me. <laughs> one thing thou lackest. And the Bible says that the man went away sorrowful. So we don't know if, if that man ever came to know the Lord. Perhaps not. If he stayed in that particular frame of mind, he never forsook all and followed the Lord. But this guy, this scribe here, uh, seems to be even closer and is asking the question, Jesus giving the answer, and we're going to talk about that answer. He was, he was delighted and pleased. You were right. You said well. 
You've answered truthfully. And then he repeats the uh, commandments as they are set forth in Deuteronomy 6. And the second commandment, I don't think I mentioned it, it's Leviticus 19, the and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus noticed that he had answered wisely. And the word wisely uh, carries the freight of knowledgeable, uh, with, with knowledge. Uh, he answered with intelligence, with mind, with thought, with one of my favorite words, cogitation. <laughs> he had cogitated, meditated, ruminated on the law of God. Done as the psalmist has said, meditated upon the law of the Lord day and night. This was a sincere scholar, one who goes to school on the, in the law of the Lord. And Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And with this particular exchange, there comes an end to all of the caustic and vituperative conversation that had taken place the days prior. Nobody asked Jesus any more questions. Now that's the good news. He stopped being challenged and, and uh, confronted. The bad news is they gave up on trying to quiz Jesus and figured out how to crucify him. They moved to the next phase of their hostility. But Jesus said to this young man, you're not very far from the kingdom. Well, what were the insights that the young man spelled out? Because he added a few things. He added a couple of things. One thing that he talked about is he talked about the, um, the theology of the Old Testament. He took the, the phrase there out of Deuteronomy, the Lord is one, and he made a comment, an orthodox comment upon the unity of God. He dealt with with orthodoxy. He says, truly, yes, the Lord our God is one. And the unity of God is an important doctrine. We don't hear too many doctrinal sermons that spell out systematic theology and the attributes of God, but it's important to know that the Lord our God is one God. We serve one God, the Lord God, Almighty God, and He is one. And that involves at least two kinds of unity. One is a unity of singularity. That is the unity that says there's no other. He is one. He is sui generis, one of a kind, unique. There is none beside him. In fact, this young man quotes Isaiah in saying that, which leads me to believe he may have been a Pharisee. There's no other God, none beside him, none other than him. He is the one true and living God. The young man was a man of orthodoxy. Also the unity of God also involves what's called the uh, unity of simplicity. Not only the unity of singularity, but the unity of simplicity. That means that God is one, that God is wholly one, entirely one. He is not made up of parts. He is not a composite. He is not a conglomerate. He is one single, solitary, divine being. And there is 
in Him. No components. One of the scandals of the last few weeks is the man who was elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention a few weeks ago, they went back to check his doctrinal statement from his church. And of course, all churches have a little doctrinal statement. Most of them go under the umbrella of the Baptist faith and message, but they all put out their own little personal doctrinal statement. In his doctrinal statement, it mentioned that God was in three parts. He was Father and part Son and part Holy Spirit. And of course, that just, that just made the red letter um, <clears throat> uh, websites and just exploded everything there for a few days. You can imagine the dear brother went back and corrected and got his doctrinal statement right. And now if you go to the website of his church, you'll, it'll be a little more orthodox. Well, it's important to know that these matters about God and His character, studying the attributes of God, the beauties and the glories of God, even though God is in, in one sense inscrutable and absolutely unknowable and His ways are past finding out, there is a way, a sense in which He has revealed to us. The hidden things belong to the Lord, but those things that are revealed belong to us. And studying and thinking about who God is and and all the things about God is an important pursuit in life. And I believe Jesus instantly perceived, even in his humanity, Jesus would be perceptive enough to see that this was a man of thoughtful consideration about his God. Also, he adds a little something in there about the moral life. Not only was he a man of orthodoxy, but he was a man of orthoproxy, that is, correct practice. And his thought there was that the Lord, to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. One of the important insights in the Old Testament, with all the sacrificial system and the many, many animals that were slaughtered and, 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 and burned and all of the ceremony that goes in talking about the awfulness of sin and the cost of atonement and the cleansing of the blood and all of the things that the sacrificial system was designed to teach, there was still always this fundamental principle that was brought out in a, in a very uh, dynamic moment by Samuel. To King Saul, telling him it is better to obey than to sacrifice. Even in the midst of all of that, there's a, there's a sense in which obeying God's commandments and, and doing what God has told you to do and, pro, and what God has prohibited to refrain and to practice your, your life and live your life ethically in a way that pleases God is more important than these sacrifices. So there's a value estimation or judgment there and he was right about that this this man this scribe is moving toward a sound biblical understanding of who God is and what God expects to obey is more important than sacrifice and to love one's neighbor that is to live ethically in communion with other human beings is more important than the rituals and all of the ceremony of the law. Even though God prescribed it, 
He expected them to do it. It's an act of obedience to do it. Not saying anything negative about the sacrificial system. It's just when you get down to what's really essential, it is better to obey than sacrifice. To love one's neighbor is more important than being uh, observant of all the rituals down at the church. Now, just uh, in the moment we have left, I want to, to take you first to the New Testament and see that we are not far from the kingdom of God if we believe like this scribe. A couple of passages from the New Testament first. Paul in the book of Romans, speaks of a half a dozen things and he calls it the law or the nomos. There's the law of sin and death. You know, there's all, all the laws. And in, in some cases, he means the Mosaic law. Sometimes he means the actual Ten Commandments. In other instances, that phrase of the law refers to the whole Old Testament. And sometimes, and in, in, uh, numerically more often, in Paul's writings, and especially in Romans, it will refer to a principle. And Paul speaks of one of those, uh, first of all, in Romans chapter 13. A very familiar passage to most of us. But look in verse 7-8. Yeah, verse 8. Here's Paul in the New Testament quoting the Old Testament. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Isn't that remarkable? That's, that's essentially what it is. Paul himself was a scholar of the law, a Pharisee, a rabbi. And he quotes a few of the commandments. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A summary statement of keeping all the law of God. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And we should see in just a moment that Paul didn't extract this from the Old Testament and reinterpret it and then make it part of New Testament canon ethical law. He is telling us what God intended from the very beginning. The law of loving the neighbor. Paul speaks in Galatians. verse 13 into 14 but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself and Paul again writing to yet a third New Testament church tells him I show you a more excellent way and then he goes into that fabulous and wonderful description of love love's intercharacter as well as its outward expression 
We call it the love chapter. This is not a wedding, but I'll read it anyway. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he tells us about love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As we read these words, I think by way of application, it's maybe time for a heart check. Search your own heart and ask yourself, what is the character and the quality of your law? James, yet another disciple in another letter, James chapter 2. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes into a particular violation of the law of the royal law of love and loving neighbor, and he speaks of partiality. And there's a whole paragraph there. I won't read it this morning, but it's a good idea to read it. And when you think of partiality, think in the big broad categories that we understand. Are you showing love, as Paul describes it? To all people, severally, individually, distributively, and equally. In other words, think of it in those categories of, say, social status. Are you showing partiality? Or are you showing love? Are you living out love? Are you performing love? Think of it in terms maybe of finances, which sometimes related is to social status. Think of it in terms of finances. Do you have in your heart the same attitude toward the poor and ragged and destitute and perhaps a little unpleasant as you do those that are rich or well-heeled, more sophisticated? What is your visceral attitude toward them and what is your outward treatment of them? And we're going to go to the Old Testament in just a minute as we conclude and find out what that treatment is in concrete terms. Think of it, in addition, socially and finally, think of it racially. What is your attitude toward others of different ethnicities and, and, and national origins? Your own personal heart, how do you feel about it? Is your, does it think no evil? No, no evil? These are the things that we search our conscience with as the Word of God is a light to our conscience. What is your overt action and treatment of someone of another race or ethnicity? See, it's a New Testament principle of how to treat people, but if we want to find out the concrete meaning of it, we got to go one more place. 
We've got to turn all the way back to where it's in context of where this is quoted. So I'm going to take you right back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, I think most of you know this, but this is Leviticus. Leviticus. It's the book of the priesthood, the sons of Levi. It's the holiness code. It's how God expects them to do just all sorts of things. Not only the sacrifices, not only their own ceremonies, but also their behaviors. And the quotation that we have heard the scribes speak of, we've heard our Lord quote, we've heard the disciples uh, explicate in their writings to the Christian churches. And we're going back now to Moses, Leviticus 19, verse 18. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, we can hold that right there in that context and talk about it, but why don't we just see what the immediate context says about loving your neighbor as yourself. So let's just quickly summarize as we conclude chapter 19. You might want to take your notes and just note a few things. The first part of that chapter says, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. That's part of loving your neighbor. That's your first neighbor, your mother and your father. What's your attitude and your respect and honor toward your own parents or your own progenitors? Maybe your family at large, maybe your aunts and uncles, grandparents, maybe the culture out of which you came, your family background, your family history. A lot of people come out of pretty rough homes there's either no father or there's a cruel father and you have a wound in your soul of how your father treated you and so forth and just never going to give it up never going to forgive never going to quite work through it loving your neighbor starts right there the very next thing he says you shall keep my sabbaths what all god required in the sabbath the sabbath is the day of rest that's when you quit where you stop all your labors and you enjoy and rest in the Lord. The Sabbath day is the day the Lord has made. The Sabbath day is the day of salvation. It's the day you stop and rest in the Lord. Then the next thing that's talked about in that particular passage is not turning to any kind of idols. And then he says, I am the Lord your God. In every major paragraph of this whole chapter, the Lord says over and over, I am your God. I am the Lord your God. That's really the most important thing we'll ever learn ethically and that is that we belong to the Lord. He has redeemed us and we live in His sight and He is the judge and we have this ever present awareness of the Lord. Forgetting God is a horrible, horrible disposition according to Scripture. We are to remember the Lord and He says that in this verse. He says it down Again, in verse 10, I am the Lord. He says it again in verse 12. He says it again in verse 14. He says it again in verse 16. He said it in the passage we just read, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And he says it a half a dozen more times before we ever get out of chapter 19 of Leviticus. But let's, uh, let's uh, talk about a couple of things 
When you reap your harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field. And he gives us what we know is the gleaning law, that we're not supposed to take every single thing we can possibly grab for ourselves, but we're to let some of it, the edges of the field, some drops, some portion of our wealth and our, our fortune and our harvest and our increase be reserved for the poor. Those who do not have. It is a a tight and selfish soul that wants to grab every grain of wheat out of the wheat wheat field instead of allowing some of it to gently and passively and preciously be left for the gleaners. And he didn't say this is to be done through federal taxation either nor necessarily a tax deduction. That's just loving your neighbor. It says the same thing with the vineyards. You shall not steal, honoring all private, private property, the right to own and to increase and to protect, to buy and sell. Private property is a God-given creation right It was put into the creation when God created the earth and the fullness thereof and put man upon the earth to live off the earth and to extract from the earth and to steal and to take something that is not yours no matter how you do it, whether by extortion or by write-out theft or by making unjust laws and policies, by adding fees, any way you want to think of it, whether is a violation of God's commandment to love your neighbor. You shall not lie to one another. The most precious commodity in society is truth. You have no love of your neighbor if you not, do not deal with them truthfully. And in our generation, we're starting to suppress truth and promote lies. Ridiculous lies. Lies that would be manifestly, obviously false to any objective observer. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. We have a situation in our country and in our world where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And it's pretty easy to see how that happens. All of the rules, the law, and the enforcement mechanisms are all geared in favor of the rich. And every time you turn around, somebody earns interest and somebody pays interest. And so all of these things that, that are financial transactions must be reexamined in the life in the light of loving neighbor. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling stone before the blind. Treatment of the disabled handicapped and otherwise folks who are not able to be productive or at least live need to be loved with that love that is bound upon us by the law of love. You shall do no injustice in court. Not a lawyer, but that's where justice breaks down. It doesn't break down on the streets with somebody mugging somebody, that's not the breakdown of justice. The breakdown of justice is when the Supreme Court will not even hear a law 
and a review of it that needs to be heard and reviewed. Justice breaks down in the courts, not in the streets, not at first. Loving the neighbor. But be righteous, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Lest you incur sin. Because this has to do with interpersonal reactions and defrauding and slander. And the way we treat one another in our interpersonal relationships. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Well, that's a whole lot of meddling. It's a whole lot easier when we get to the summary statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think we hear the voice of the Lord. It's clear. And it's not a matter of difficult Bible interpretation. A Jewish scribe in the first century could figure it out pretty closely. I don't know if that young man went on to become a believer, but somehow I think the tenderness with which the Lord looked upon him. Remember when Jesus dealt with the young ruler and said Jesus loved him. He, 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 he felt something for him, but, but the young man never did do what the Lord said he should do, that is follow me. But I think this man may have, I don't know. I don't know. I love preaching where I end up where I say, I don't know. Let's sing together as we close. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. We love Him because He first loved us.